Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Lateral Show. Fasten your seatbelts, because here we go. It's the lateral show back at it again with a two part episode. Count them one, two parts. It's going to be a lot of fun breaking down the AFC in our AFC preview. Following up, you know, because last week was the NFC and there's only one other conference in the NFL. So, yeah, that's what it is. My name is Herms. You can follow me on Twitter at Herms NFL. You can follow mclateral at mclateral ff on twitter and you can follow the lateral at the lateral ff on twitter we also have a website www.thelateralff.com and we have a youtube channel that you can find if you look for it so uh yeah i guess that kind of yeah really speeding through really speeding through i i felt that that went fairly well if you had to put that introduction on a scale of one to five where would you put it 4.20. 4.20. There we go. Shout out 420 Blaze. All right. Nice. That is a great score. I'm very happy. Honestly, I hope I never improve upon it. I think that's probably the peak that I can achieve. So, uh, yes, as I said before, it's the AFC preview. And we also have some other fun stuff to talk about. But we're not going to get into the mailbag portion in this episode so part one we're just gonna do you know on my soapbox do a little bit of the hot seat then we will get into a couple of the divisions but that's it that'll be the end of the episode and then it's on you it's on you to tune into part two if you really feel compelled to hear that mailbag and to hear us like plug things with great depth and specificity you are going to have to come back so just wanted to get that out of the way wanted to get that out of the way up top and here we go on my soapbox. What do you have today? Well, what do I have today? I have. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> we could be wrong. I think that's just something that people need to remember when they do any of the analysis, whether it be uh 10 characters, 140 characters, 280 characters, or like, you know, a thousand words, we could be wrong. And that's okay. Like, there is no way we will get everything right. If we did, we would be getting paid a ton of money. And that goes for everyone in the industry. Like, can you imagine like what, like Matthew Berry is already an insanely coveted commodity for his personality, for his ability to talk about fantasy to just about anyone. And for the fact that he is good at the sport, like, can you imagine like how in demand he would be if he literally could predict everything correctly? Like fantasy is a multi-million, multi-billion dollar <laughs> industry potentially. Like you got a big yeah. chunk of that if you literally had all the answers. And nobody has them. Nobody has all the answers for who's going to break out where, what projections are going to be accurate. Like I just did my San Francisco projections, a uh, good chunk of them in preparation for the DLF. 
show that I did yesterday. You can go check that out. It is, I think, on DLF's page as well as somewhere in my Twitter. I did a Niners preview for them. And, like, I could be totally wrong about all those. I've gone through the data. I've looked at, like, historical target rates and completion percentages, et cetera, et cetera. I've listened to the camp stories. I've done all these things. I think I'm right, but I could be wrong. And it's totally fine. The key is being sure about the process, letting the process do its thing. And then at the end, when you have the results, seeing where your process was wrong and adjusting as needed. So I think it's just something we need to keep in mind as hot take season truly ramps up and we start doing victory laps on quarterbacks throwing balls in practice but it's so much fun because if you had like one little inkling of a thing that you were correct about then you have to tell everyone you have to tell everyone that's how this works right isn't that the the thing yeah my counterpoint would be it's not that fun it's actually annoying and like it uh twitter has been like unenjoyable honestly for the past couple of days um so yeah that that's that's my on my soapbox that's my rant my spiel as it were take it as you will yeah and you know like i do like to follow like the fantasy pros like expert accuracy ranking thing and like it is super cool but you know even having gone through and looked at certain things like even the people that finish super high on the list like they have like their whole fancy aggregated system and if you're not familiar with how this works then i mean like you can go on and check it out uh at fantasypros.com but um like i even have it pulled up in front of me now they've you know done this from you know they they have this page it's multi-year fantasy football accuracy from 2018 to 2020 and you know like number one on the list pat fitzmorris former guest you know on this very uh lateral network um most accurate with the running backs number one but like you know 15 at the quarterback position, 15 at wide receiver, you know, the eighth most accurate at tight end. So it's like, just, you know, and I'm not saying that to clown him necessarily, but just to like further highlight the point that like the person who is best at that thing per their own methodology is still not right. One, <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're not yeah. the national weather service does. And that's just a, a great job. Yeah. We don't know the percentage of the takes he got right. Like if, for example, he got only 40% of the QBs right, but everyone else got less than that, right? That would still make him number one, but he'd be getting wrong at more than half the time. Like, I feel like 50 to 60% at best is like what the true experts manage to do. Yeah. And like, you know, cause I, I took a meteorology class in college and I learned Same. that, you know, like yeah shout out meteorology and like you know like in the, i'm sure we both learn the same you know pieces of information you know like looking at like the most accurate services and all that stuff like even like the national weather service being as good as it is still <laughs> you know like so many variables come into play all the time whether it's you know because th- doing any of this and being accurate is just like you know we are predicting human behavior of which we have no control over you know what i mean like it's just, yeah i I don't know. Like it, that really grinds my gears too. And just, uh, I really want to echo that because my soapbox is incredibly short. I felt okay spending time echoing yours because all I have to say is the fleets are gone. The fleets are gone from Twitter. Someone argued they were fleeting. Ooh, but it's a hey, shout out. Ooh, 
lateral stand up hour. But like, yeah, I, I mean, I would. The top of the timeline looks weird on my phone now, and it, it took does. me. It, yeah, it, they did it's, not kill that dead space appropriately. Not at all. So like that part of it has been jarring, <laughs> to say the least. But other than that, you know, it's just like I, I didn't need this. I'm a grumpy old man. I don't like it when things change. So. You know, now that it, it, doing away with that is something that, like, I am personally thrilled about. But at the same time, who cares? It was never really that big of a deal to begin with anyway. I just felt like voicing my relief because this is my soapbox, damn it. If I want to say it, I can say it. So, yeah, there's really, <laughs> there's not a whole lot to go into with that. So, I mean, if you're good, you want to move on to the hot seat? Yeah, I'm good. Let's do it. Alrighty, moving right on into this week's burning topic. So, oh man, that would make a really good drop. I'm going to put that in my mental notes. Yes, but <laughs> Alexander Madison. Uh, now, the reason I say that with some sort of uh, weird, like, you know, inflection in my voice is because A, there's a question mark on the show sheet, and B, uh, it's. It's this stems from a debate that you and I had uh, via text. It was either, uh, Which is like yes. the only reason we have it on here. That's why the question mark is there. It's like, is this an important debate to have? No. Did it like occupy us for like 30 minutes and involve like going through game logs and doing research? Yes. Yes, it did. It absolutely did. And I'm so here for it. And honestly, I will say, you know, just like, you know, a teaser for the end folks. It will the it'll wrap up with some sort of discussion about running back handcuffs. So don't don't think this is just us <laughs> doing this for fun. I mean, there is value to this conversation. So I guess we can dive right into it. Uh, my stance at the beginning was something to the effect of I don't know. Is we were talking about <laughs> running back handcuffs, and I think I said something about him and then it got weird and then you know because you said something about like being weirdly out on madison and that's when i was like wait a minute what okay how did how did you arrive at this conclusion and because that is the sequence of events i will let you start with stating your case yes yeah, so it, it comes down to a couple things one um dalvin cook like you know i think it's no it's safe to no longer call him injury prone you know like, yeah, he misses like a game a season, maybe two. That's not really injury prone. That's, you know, that's just the knocks you pick up when you're running back in the NFL. Um, the other thing I would, so that like kind of takes away some of the value, but you could say that about a lot of people. Sure. But then the other thing is I find him to have some big playability. I get why people like the big playability, but if you go through his game logs and then you go through the play by plays in those games where he actually had meaningful contributions, it's a lot of like negative two to plus two yard plays. And then he'll break out a 10 yarder and it's like, okay, cool. But like, I, I find there's a lot of inefficient touches in his game. And I think that really translates into the red zone where he's had three touchdowns his entire career, which given that he's had eight games with 10 plus touches well 10 plus rushing attempts so far in his career i feel like that number's a little skew i get the touchdowns aren't the stickiest stat but like that to me combined with his inefficiency on a lot of his touches that to me combines into a red flag then you take into account the fact that when he's been the starter he basically had one good game one really good game admittedly and one not so great game to be fair 
the good game he had was his most recent game. I do not want to discount that by any means. So we've got some mixed performance when he gets a fair amount of work, some mixed performance when he gets the majority of the work. There's possibly some camp competition from Kenne uh, Ningwangu, which sorry if I butchered that name. I genuinely looked at it and tried and like we, tried. we had a conversation before the show. Like this seem right, <laughs> but I've like I've heard some buzz. I've heard like friend of the show Andrew Metcalf talk about him in well seen him type and tweet about him. He's intriguing. I'm hearing some decent things. And like, I just don't know how sold they are on Madison, who, if I recall correctly, fourth round pick, third round pick, somewhere in that ballpark. I want to say third. Yeah. So not heavy draft capital. Like, it's nice, but, you know, Dalvin Cook's also not going anywhere. So for me, it's like, I want to take Pollard or Dylan, especially Pollard, like with Dallas potentially being towards moving away from Elliott rather than moving towards Elliott. That's, you know, that's interesting. It's something I'd rather take a chance on. And Pollard, when he's gotten that starting role, I think has had a higher success rate than Madison. They're equally small sample sizes. So this is all with a grain of salt. But there's just guys like Pollard and A.J. Dillon, who I feel are more sure bets. And like Alexander Madison just hasn't impressed me that much. It's been a mixed bag. Well, there it is, folks. You got the McLateral argument. Now... We got the Herms argument. Wham, bam, let's go. Okay, so one of the things that I had researched in, you know, just because I like to go through and look things up and do whatnot and this, that, and the other, because that's kind of a part of being an analyst. Uh, The interesting thing that I found about the Minnesota backfield over the course of Dalvin Cook's time there is that, you know, they really do like to trust that one player with, you know, around like, you know, 70-some percent of like, you know, like the snaps and like all that other type of shit to the point where it's just like whoever is leading that backfield is leading that backfield and probably not seeding work to anybody. And whenever Alexander Madison has had to take over that backfield, that trend that makes Dalvin Cook incredibly good stays true for Alexander Madison. They don't typically work in somebody else too much to the point where it ends up being, you know, kind of a frustrating thing. Caveat in 2019 there was a little bit of Mike Boone that came in there. So, you know, it's just like, yes, I understand that that was not true at the end of 2019, but for the most part last season in 2020, whenever Dalvin cook exited the game, it was heavy Alexander Madison. So at least in my mind, while there is a mixed bag of inefficiencies in terms of the per rush, you know, success, he gets the bulk of that. And I am just, I'm, I'm a sucker for guaranteed volume. That's, you know, that's something that I really enjoy. And if anybody, you know, had their starter go down in front of them, whenever I look at players, you know, in the backup positions at running back, I'm just like, who can best step in and fill that volume as close to what the starter can possibly do? And he is one of those guys for me. And then when it came to, you know, looking at the red zone stats, that was a little interesting. Uh, shout out Stathead. If you don't have a subscription to this service, definitely check that out. It's super cool. Um, as far as, like, in 2019, he only got, like, 11% of his red zone, you know, carries and whatnot, or attempts, I guess, were from, like, what did I say? 11.1? for Yes, from goal-to-go situations. Like, only, you know, he got plenty from, like, 7 to 10 yards out, but, like, those really close, gimme, guarantee opportunities... He never really got the chance to prove whether or not he was super effective in that regard. And even last year in 2020, 
37.5% of his attempts coming, you know, from that goal-to-go situation. It's more. It's more. But still, the majority of them came from a little bit outside the red zone there. So it's just like, it's... The the stickiness is, you know, or lack thereof, you know, that's where I get hung up. But I do understand it to a certain extent. And then my final thoughts, I would say, well, two final thoughts. One, Kene uh, Ungwangwu, I'm trying. I, I hope that's how it's pronounced. We we tried two different variations of the pronunciation. So if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, it didn't. I thought he was kind of more of a special teams contributor in college. But if I'm wrong about that, I could be wrong about that. And I, I think he was, but I think they are giving him touches as an actual running back in camp so far. Cool. All right. Yes. And I, I, I think there is a chance that he really is that third guy behind Madison from what little I've seen out of Vikings camp so far. But I do not. Amir Abdullah. But I, I do think your assertion of him having been a special teams guy largely in college is correct. Yeah. So, I mean, I can see, you know, it's still early in camp and we do need time for that to develop. That was a pretty, you know, it, it wasn't the worst point in the world for me to make, but it was also not exactly the fairest point for me to make. So it's just like, we'll wait and see on that. I'm not going to dismiss that completely, but then it kind of spiraled into, I think where the bulk of, you know, the value of this conversation really comes into it in terms of how we view approaching handcuff running backs there it is folks see what did i say i told you there was a reason we put this in the show this is kind of an interesting conversation now if we do want to address madison pollard and aj Dillon as a group of three we can absolutely do that or i can just present you a fun second option whichever way we go with this perfectly fine uh just more general philosophy Let, or... let's 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 hear your fun second option and then we'll circle back to a point focusing on just the three can do so the fun second option generally speaking if you are going to invest in a handcuff running back are you team take your own or take someone else's go does not matter to me uh i think both have their values i i am typically of the opinion of whichever one i don't have to reach for but if I'm taking someone else's, I want it to be a true handcuff. Okay. Okay. So, so like, instead of, yes. Like Latavius Murray, well, or actually Tony Pollard, for example. Like if Tony Pollard happens to fall to me at the right spot in the draft, or AJ Dillon happens to fall to me at the right spot in the draft, I would want to take those guys. I view them as valuable. They will be valuable to my team, even if I can't trade them. Like, you know, someone like Justin Jackson that's maybe a guy that I want more if I'm the Austin Eckler owner or manager, sorry. uh, Or if he happens to fall to me at the right spot, but he's not a guy that I'm more excited to get. So again, for me, it doesn't matter because you're still basically waiting on an injury to happen. It's nice if you have your own guy, because if the injury happens to your other guy, you have his backup. But again, I'm not a huge believer in reaching for a handcuff. At least not until you get into double-digit rounds. Then you can play a little more. Gotcha. Okay. And that certainly makes a lot of sense. But, yeah, if you are going to – like, I think across both uh, ends or, like, both camps in terms of how to view that, the whole value part of it is it's a there's a straight line through both of them. So, yes, absolutely. Like, I co-sign it 100%. Do not reach for any handcuff, whether it's, you know, someone else's or your own. Um 
And then, you know, I do understand the whole thing of just like, well, you know, like guaranteeing that if something happens to your starter, you know, like that's helpful to you. But then there's also like the flip side of the argument. And I'm not even saying I agree with one side or the other. I'm fairly agnostic when it comes to this, but just for the sake of presenting that information, like the whole thing is just like, well, if you take somebody else's and their guy goes down, then it's just like, oh, well, check out all the fun value you have in your team now. So it's like, I get both sides of it for sure. But, you know, just kind of in case people, you know, we're not familiar with that thought process. That's the thought process that people have put out there. And I understand the value of both of them. But I think, you know, like to your point, it's basically like you want it to be one of those dudes that, you know, at least, you know, because like the higher ranked people in that discussion are the people that like could have their own standalone value. Plus, honestly, like increase. Yes. We've talked about stacking before when it comes to QB and wide receivers. You can think of a handcuff really as a stack. So, for example, if I have J.K. Dobbins and Tony Pollard and J.K. Dobbins goes out and Ezekiel Elliott goes out, or Ezekiel Elliott stays in rather, then I have gotten zero points from my J.K. Dobbins and Tony Pollard stack because it isn't one. But if I have Ezekiel Elliott and I have Tony Pollard, and Ezekiel Elliott goes out, then I'm going to get all the points from that running back group. Obviously, in-game, you would miss the points because that's how redraft works. But for your next games, you're still getting that level of production. So I would argue that there is more value to getting your own handcuff. I just wouldn't handicap your team in order to do so. (laughs) Uh, There we go. Sneaky with the wordplay. You love to see it, folks. You love to hear it. Actually, yeah, I was going to say audio medium, but you know, it's what it is. Yeah, yeah, it's been a very difficult transition. I mean, I know we're yeah. however many episodes deep, but speaking of transitioning, I want to just go over their ADPs real quick. This should be PPR ADP from Fantasy Pros. Tony Pollard, pick one eighteen overall, RB forty one. Gus Edwards, one twenty two, RB forty three. A potential J.K. Dobbins handcuff because. All he does is run the ball and all the Ravens do is run the ball. So yeah, like Gus Edwards isn't the pass catcher that JK Dobbins is, but if you don't throw the ball to your running back, it doesn't matter. Um, Jamal Williams overall 129 RB 45. And then you've got AJ Dillon um, somewhere in there. I just saw ah, 108 RB 40. And then Alexander Madison at overall 143 RB 47. And like, I kind of think that's the correct order. Like, I think Madison should be at the bottom of those grouping of guys, partially because he won't have any standalone value unless his counterpart gets injured. But like, also like every other guy we've mentioned, I feel confident that the team will stick with them. If there's one bad game with Madison, I'm not confident that the Vikings will necessarily stick with him. If there's a bad game if they think that they have other options, like that's uh, my other thing. They're like Tony Pollard, the Cowboys feel invested in Tony Pollard, AJ Dillon. The Packers are certainly invested in AJ Dillon, Jamal Williams. We feel like the Lions have clearly invested in Jamal Williams. Oh boy. Alexander Madison. If the Vikings decided, you know what we've seen enough, like would it really shock everyone? I think that is a difference. When I talk about that being the running back and waiting, like, yeah, you go, well, that doesn't really matter for redraft because they're still waiting. It's like, but it does mean the team will be more likely to stick with them through thick and thin than like we saw, for example, Wayne Gallman was not the running back and waiting 
in New York. And so you know what New York did? They brought in other running backs. That is true. Shout so, out my hefty investment into Devontae Freeman last year in our exactly. home league. That was <laughs> Whereas like if you're talking about like the Packers, we sort of just knew what was going to happen. We knew what the pack, pecking order was. With Dallas, we knew what that pecking order was. You know? True. Yeah. And you know, so and that's, I think that's kind of my point there. Yeah, for sure. And I I do it and like I said before, you know, it's just like I want to see what the Vikings have to say about the man with the name that I don't want to butcher for a third time. So I'll just say, you know who we're talking about, uh, the recent draftee. And, like, we'll see how that goes. But um, at least, I don't know. It's a, I want to kind of wrap it up a little bit just, like, with, you know, a little bit <laughs> of my perspective with that group of three, mostly just because I only really have strong feelings about one of them. AJ Dillon is a player that based off of how I have the Packers offense projected for this season, knowing officially that Aaron Rodgers will be there. I'm not confident that he will have enough of a role to hold standalone value, mostly because of the whole, like there's the last dance, you know, narrative going around, just like, you know, this is the final hurrah for, you know, Rogers and Devontae Adams. And also the fact that despite the extension being four years, if I remember correctly for Aaron Jones, they do have an out after the second year that can save them a lot of money. If they decide to cut and move on and just do whatever. I don't know. Like Jamal Williams, not being there. Does it open up an opportunity for a second running back to do something? Yes. Because all running back rooms do split snaps, do split touches. They do distribute things in a certain way. That's just how all things work. And also just a really, really quick, uh, you know, pull over the car. All running backs share. Whenever you're talking about workhorse guys or whatever, they're still sharing a significant amount of the work. It's, you know, just all running back rooms share work. Anyway, bringing it back onto the road. I don't see AJ Dillon being able to do what Jamal Williams did. Therefore, it's something where a lot of the evidence, at least in my mind, just points to it being this aggressively large groundswell of just, you know, like usage, 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 usage for Aaron Jones to the point where I have him all the way up at my RB4 at this point. And I do, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be aggressive and put him in that tier. Granted, at the very bottom of the tier, with Christian McCaffrey, Alvin Kamara, and Dalvin Cook, he is. I, I am, I'm expecting a magical season. So, two things. First of all, to be clear, you do not have Saquon Barkley in that tier. I do not. We and we and we've talked about that okay. over the last couple episodes. You know, it's just one of those things where. You know, like I, I will say I have since moved Saquon Barkley up, you know, since last week, since, you know, two weeks ago when I talked about him in those episodes, but he's, he's, he's literally just outside. And <laughs> like, so then my, he's my, very close. my second point would be, I have Aaron Jones as my RB seven. He's been the RB five, I think like the past two years in a row, basically it's been very consistent work from him. You're right that AJ Dillon does not have the same skill set that Jamal Williams does but you know who does have that same skill set is Aaron Jones. They're going to put, I think, more of that passing game work onto Aaron Jones, maintaining, therefore, his fantasy value. But do not be shocked if we see a Gus Edwards-like role from A.J. Dillon where he gets like 10 rushing attempts and zero targets a game, which I honestly 
see. That is like what I'm expecting from AJ Dillon. I'm expecting like 10 tar- 10 rushing attempts per game, maybe a little bit of goal line work, but I don't think inherently so. Uh, and like very little passing game work. And I think Aaron Jones will maintain his like top five potential and certainly his RB1 status because he is going to see so much of that Jamal Williams passing game work, which he already was anyway. If you actually go back and look through the stats the past couple of years, Jamal Williams was seeding passing work to Aaron Jones already anyway. That is true. And hey, you know, the thing where I feel like our opinions on projecting that offense meets is the question ultimately being, and I don't know that we're going to have an answer to this until we see it, is that red zone slash goal line role a thing that A.J. Dillon can possibly seize? That, to me, is kind of where, like, if you're... And even then, you didn't take a definitive stance, so I'm not going to put words. I would, I would say like, C, yes, yes, C's no. Aaron Jones yes. is good in that range. He is their number one running back. It's not like he's, you know, like the For Bills th- running backs who have a weakness potentially in that area. You know, Aaron Jones can get in the end zone. He's had zero problems with it. So For I sure, don't, yeah. I don't see them needing to spell Aaron Jones in that area. However, if they chose to just let Aaron Jones take a playoff, because guess what? They don't care about your fantasy team. They care about him not getting bruised and battered around the goal line. And he that just took true. two attempts at it. So they're going to give AJ Dillon a shot. Like, you know, I could see stuff sure. like that. Exactly. So it's like, for me, like that is where me believing more in the standalone value would come from. But at the same time, we're mostly on the same page. I think that was a real man. Look at us. Look yeah. at us getting into the weeds about. Oh this, oh, this is wonderful. Look at us. This is so, good content, folks. This is good content. So I think it's time to just get into the preview. And maybe we'll have a surprise for part two. And there might be a second hot seat. <gasps> but you'll have to stay tuned to find out. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> check out that teaser, folks. All right. Which brings us into the AFC preview. Yes. And we start in the American Football Conference East with your boy talking about the outlook for Jets rookie running back Michael Carter. Now, when I initially proposed this as a big question mark, I thought the the font was a little larger on that question mark because for a while I felt there was a significant discrepancy in his ADP and you know, what I project for, you know, him to be able to do in this Jets offense. Yeah, but it, it, things have caught up. You know, I feel like the public is starting to wise up a little bit, but let's just throw it out there anyway. When we look at the Jets running back room, a lot is made, or at least was made before, about how it's just like, well, you know, I mean, Michael, he's only 5'8". You know, he split a lot of time at North Carolina with Javante Williams. Can we really expect him to be able to, you know, carry the bulk of a workload for an offense. And like, you know, those are all fair questions to ask. Also, you know, Robert Sala being the new head coach coming over from San Francisco, the team signed Tevin Coleman. You know, they have a little connection there. You know, Mike LaFleur, uh, brother of Matt LaFleur. Hey, callback. We were talking about the Packers. Yeah, yeah. family affair. Woohoo. This is true. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like, well, how's that going to work? I mean, is he just going to be in more of a complimentary role? What's going to happen? But then, 
you know, something, you know, started to occur to me, you know, it's just like, well, let's face it. I, I don't really care how large he is or, you know, what type of a skill set he has, because ultimately at the end of the day, talent rises to the top. And he is objectively the best running back in that room. And then last night, I was listening to the Fantasy Pros football podcast. And in Mike Taglier, you know, shout out the homeboy. Actually, I don't know him. We're not homeboys. But if you hear this, please, please have us on the Fantasy Pros show. It would be amazing. But um, Or hell, you could even come on this show. He pointed out a similar player who found himself in a similar situation. And that player's name was Devontae Freeman. And I went to playerprofiler.com, typed in Michael Carter, best comparable player. Guess who it was? Guess who I'm going to go with Devonta Freeman. Yes, it was Devonta Freeman. Yes. And when, uh, if, if, okay, so if I remember correctly, you know, so when he, you know, when he came in, you know, there was some question about like, oh, well, how's he going to do in his backfield? Because there's a guy in front of him, you know, back in the day in Atlanta, you know, the who, who was the guy? Who was the guy in front of him that people were worried about? Do you, do you remember? Are we talking about Tevin Coleman? Oh, we're talking we... about Tevin Coleman. Yes, oh, we're man. talking about Tevin Coleman. Weird coincidence. Weird coincidence. But at the same time, it kind of just, you know, brought to light. It's just like, you know, similar size, similar athletic profile, you know, like similar, you know, situation. It's just like, well, you know, the greater talents eventually won out. And, you know, like that was just, you know, it's it's a fun parallel. So, you know, I figured I'd shout it out, you know. That's where I got that idea from. You know, I didn't come up with that on my own. But also, I went through and looked at other examples of running backs around that size. And in the right scheme, you can definitely pull that off because we've seen smaller dudes be able to do things in a creative fashion. And when we think about it, I mean, Mike LaFleur has followed around someone for a very, very long time, whether it was, you know, coaching the offense i think it was in the passing game but either way part of the offensive you know coaching staff in atlanta when kyle shanahan was still there then brought him over to san francisco where he was running that and now salah poached him to help run you know the jets offense and make him you know the full offensive coordinator if we're gonna assume that it's going to be something akin to a kyle shanahan offense you know you're the niners fan i mean like that 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 run scheme can accommodate a guy michael carter's size can it i mean you know you you talked about this you know uh on the on the dlf show so why don't you take a little bit of that from there because that's that's more your neck of the woods in terms of fandom and then also just your thoughts on michael carter so i like michael carter i think it's nice that he's going to end up being in a committee i think that suits him i suited him in college i think it will continue to suit him here um and I would not be shocked to see him take on a Raheem Mostert-like role in this offense. Um, potentially a Devonta Freeman role. Uh, I'm not sure he's quite the potential bell cow that Freeman ultimately started to trend towards. Even though For sure. Freeman had still that split with Coleman, but like there was a point where we no longer questioned whose running back room it was. I don't know that we'll ever quite get there with Carter, though Carter at least has zero competition to play against. I think that's what it kind of comes down to. Like Coleman at this point is nothing special. Let me, Michael P. Ryan, maybe, you know, yeah, you never know. At Josh Adams, like I think currently the highest played running back in the running back room, except for now, probably Michael Carter. Like, you know, blows my mind still. <laughs> uh, there, there's a lot of mediocrity in that running back room. It's kind of anyone's game. Like, even, um, 
Oh my God. A Ty Johnson, the there it is. Maryland there it is. guy. And I call him the Maryland guy. Cause I basically forgot about his time on the lions and the lions did too. Cause they traded him, uh, you know, like, after this, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, I definitely see them using at least a two headed, if not a three headed monster. I think, you know, when I was on the DLF podcast, our show, the Niners preview that they were doing last night, I talked about how in 2019, the Niners used basically a battering ram and then an explosive speed guy. And then another explosive speed guy, like they had Tevin Coleman softening up offenses and then a combination of Mostert and Brita kind of just, uh, softening up defenses, sorry. And then a combination of Mostert and Brita kind of just exploiting the holes, using their explosive speed, and just crushing with efficiency. And so I think we could see something similar with Michael Carter. It wouldn't shock me at all. And I think the interesting thing to maybe look out for is who is going to be the Tevin Coleman of that offense because I'm not sure it's going to be Tevin Coleman, ironically enough. <laughs> like, if I had to bet on anyone, I'd bet on the Michael P. Ryan. It would make a little more sense because that's someone who, if he is any good, you have someone for the future because you've already drafted him and you drafted him in the fourth round for basically nothing. Like, you know, what are you going to do? Cut the guy? Like, so, you know, he would have to, he would have to perform well enough to deserve that role, obviously. But like, are we really sure he can't beat out Ty Johnson and Josh Adams and Tevin Coleman? Like, I'm not. So he's the like guy I take a bet on to compliment Michael Carter. But Michael Carter is the one piece of that running back room that I'd want unless I'm like looking to get some cheap pieces at the end of a best ball draft where it's like, maybe I'm wrong. And they like just give Tevin Coleman a bunch of work and he excels or Ty Johnson turns out to be really good. And it's like, you got them for nothing. And that's great. But I'm only ever going to bet on Michael Carter. Yeah, no, and I, I'm definitely with you at that point. And I remember at a certain part of, you know, the early, you know, ADP data, you know, it was just like it was coming in at a value. So I have a couple questions for you before we move on to your points about the biggest question mark in the uh, in the AFC East. This will give you an opportunity to, you know, I'm going to vamp a little bit so you can pull up your rankings if they're not in front of you immediately. Um, first of all, I want to know where you have Michael Carter in your rankings and then I want to know how far is it away from, you know, ADP right now on Fantasy Pros, PPR, running back 30. And then the final thing I want to know is, are you down to clown with that value? Because I'm going to answer that part of it for me right away and say, yes, absolutely. I am definitely interested in having him as a guy that could have some really, really solid flex value. I'm interested but to me that technically wouldn't be a value because he is my running back 33 so if he's going adp rb 30 he is not a value um but he's going around guys for me like melvin gordon mike davis david johnson damian harris james connor i would take a chance potentially on any of those guys if they fell to me at the right spot um but yeah, I'm not I'm not like specifically targeting or not targeting Michael Carter one way or the other. Yeah, no, I feel you. And also, uh, it, it's funny that I said value in the way that I did because I have him as my RB28. So what I was really suggesting is he is definitely at the exact value. Yes. yes. I would say not he's confused, yeah. folks. Not saying he's a true value by any, but 
it's right on par at least yeah and i'm not particularly excited by anyone in like my 30 and below range you know james robinson at rb28 is maybe the last person i get excited about you know raheem mostert maybe at rb29 that's like it like mike davis at rb31 like if push comes to shove and i'm like looking at my rb31 on the board it's mike davis versus michael carter I'm, i might take michael carter i don't believe in mike davis so like why would i take mike davis i just i literally have mike davis at rb31 because there is a universe in which he actually is Atlanta's running back for 17 games. And so at that point, you really, at that you at the 31th running 31st running back, 31. you should, probably, there we go. <laughs> you should uh-huh. probably take Mike Davis at that point, like enough is enough. Just take the guy. It was like the one year where Derrick Henry fell to like everyone in drafts. It's like at a certain point, enough is enough. Just take Derrick Henry at a certain point. Enough is enough. You just got to take Mike Davis. But like, man, it's like, yeah, you, you, there's universes where I could t- be talked into taking Mike Call Carter instead of Mike Davis. Thirty RB thirty is not far off from where I have him. Yeah, yeah, and you know, folks, these are the types of decisions you have to make if you are looking to finish one in your league and win that title one overall. There you go, folks. Oh my gosh, that I'm never gonna let that go. That was that seriously awesome. the the lateral needs a <laughs> one place uh, finish shirt. This is oh my gosh! This is right up there with Peak Lohan. This I this is a thing now. Okay, so speaking Finished of one things, thing fantasy league. There we go. <laughs> uh, speaking of things that are things, <laughs> what's your biggest question mark for the AFCs? Well, so I was talking about this AFC preview with my good friend Krista, and I was she was like, "Well, should I come on the podcast?" And I'm like, "Hey." what are your big question marks for each of the AFC divisions for the 2021 season? And she's just like, let me tell you what aren't my big question marks. And I gotta say <laughs> a killer line B. Well, I don't know if that would apply to the AFC as a whole. It does apply to the new England Patriots. Like oh, what? Boy. Oh yeah. We all thought this was going to be about <laughs> the jets We're talking question marks. No, 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 no. It's the Patriots. Cause what aren't my question marks? I don't know what they're going to do. They've like, they've paid two tight ends and a receiver that like was the like worst catch rate. I think of all the fantasy top 24 wide receivers or whatever. It's just like, you know, there's a meme about Nelson. So it's just like, all right. New England didn't throw to tight ends at all last year. They didn't really throw to tight ends the year before. (laughs) Their tight end market share has been declining like year in, year out. And it's just like, are they going to use Jacoby Myers? Are they going to use Nelson Aguilar? Are they going to use one of their many running backs? They brought James White back. So are we going to see Damian Harris like and James White and Jacoby Myers and Nelson Aguilar? And is Cam Newton the running back? Because then that's an, like, you know. And I said running back, I mean running back, because that's what he did last year. I get that he lined up at quarterback, but, like, he was a running back. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, like, I think there were 12 rushing touchdowns for Patriots players last year, and I think 11 of them were Cam Newtons. You can check me on that stat. I'm telling you, I think I'm actually correct on it. It's insane. That That's how absurd it was. 
especially because Cam Newton, I don't think played a full season, if I recall. Like he got injured at times. So like, will the Mac Jones transition happen? At, he, he got the COVID. You know, yeah. So, maybe, so will right? the will the Mac Jones transition happen at some point? Maybe, maybe not. There are so many questions about this offense. So I will say. I've even come around to the Pats shifting to accommodate the tight ends, but like from a fantasy perspective, is that going to matter? Like if Belichick throws to each like 15% of the time, we're talking about two potential tight end ones, but like, what if he does, what if he throws to them like each 12% of the time, that'd still be a 24% market share for the position, which is good for tight ends. But then you're looking at maybe neither of them being top 12 it'd be way above the recent historical average for the Patriots. Like Johnny Smith and Hunter Henry are not being paid that drastically different. When you look at their guaranteed money, a lot of Johnny Smith is in non-guaranteed money. I think actually of the three Hunter Henry, then Nelson Aguilar, then Johnny Smith in terms of guaranteed annual salary. That is the order. So, yeah. yes, Johnny Smith got the bigger contract of the three, but, you know, is the money that different that he's guaranteed to be the bigger target of the three? Who knows? We already saw Johnny be somewhat lackluster, I think, in Tennessee. You know, I think there's a reason that Tennessee wasn't, like, trying its hardest to bring him back at all costs. Oh, for sure. And also, if you want to have uh, a little more insight into that piece of, you know, conversation as far as Johnny Smith and his time, you know, as a tight end with Tennessee, definitely go back and check out our episode where we break down how we evaluate the tight end position. There's a lot more in there. Definitely listen back to that if you haven't already. Uh, but yes, uh, if like like in Arthur else, Smith's yeah. time at Tennessee, Johnny Smith was the only tight end that wasn't like a top five tight end. It's crazy, from like right? Del- from like Delaney Walker. I mean, granted, it was all Delaney Walker who was pretty good, but like Johnny Smith just got paid pretty good money so like we either think johnny smith's pretty good or we don't and like i'm I'm not sure that i'm all that impressed i'm not sure that he's all that more special compared to hunter henry at least in terms of catching the ball yep yeah. so it'll be it'll be interesting to see i have so many question marks about that team but maybe you can answer one of them for me can you i think i could do at least a halfway decent job at minimum so what you got what do you think of Jacoby Myers? When called upon last year after, you know, because like the whole Julian Edelman, like, oh, ouch, I'm not playing anymore. I'm injured. Huh, what do we do? Jacoby Myers really stepped up. And even though it didn't result in a lot of touchdowns, unfortunately, I mean, like he definitely was able to pull off being peppered with a lot of targets that resulted in fantasy value that you could use in your lineup a lot of the time. So, I mean, you know, vamping a little bit so I can pull up some of the stats. Here we go. So, you know, I, I can't remember the circumstances in which, you know, he got injured or something or whatever because I have the game log in front of me. It goes week one, two, three, and then there's a jump to week seven. So I don't remember what happened. Sorry, can't recall that off the top of my head. But I'm just going to speed through the targets that he received from week seven on six 10 14 7 3 6 6 5 10 6 7 pretty good uh, can, pretty can you good. do me can you do me a favor can you also re- read out the touchdowns he scored during that time 
Oh, yes, absolutely. No problem at all. Here we go. Zero, 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 zero. <laughs> you know, and the, the trend continues. I, I will there is a pattern it, there. Yeah, so it definitely gets a little dicey there for sure. But even the PPR fantasy points, you know, you know, it's, it's like he, he hits double digits, generally speaking, for the most part throughout that stretch i mean there are times where it dips a little below because you know like there's a game you know against houston in week 11 you know three for 38 passing is what it is although i do remember that being a big cam newton rushing game but like don't quote me on that either way point he is checks out when called upon jacoby myers is the one that really stepped up which is why i have him as my breakout slash under the radar player for the afc east lest we forget this guy was good for the team last year and yes nelson Aguilar is somebody i am potentially interested in to the point where i spent a scott fishbowl draft pick on him anything is possible there is an avenue for that to take place but if i'm betting on who's most likely to be actually let me put it this way if i could have that pick back and i could pick a different <laughs> patriots wide receiver <laughs> I would probably, I would probably take Jacoby Myers. Oh, hindsight's a bitch, ain't it? Oh, and uh, also, just I will use this brief amount of time before I hand it over to you to mention the fact that uh, Kendrick Bourne also got a weird amount of guaranteed money. Yeah, in free agency yeah. as well. Belichick yeah. loved him. I yeah. Think I think there's some special teams involved with that potentially. I think Patriots special teams weren't particularly great last year. And so I think bringing in Kendrick Bourne helps with that. I could be totally off base, but I recall reading that somewhere. For sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a ton of targets. That's probably as many targets as Gabriel Davis saw all last season, just in that stretch from week seven on. Uh, but Gabe Davis is my pick for breakout or under the radar guy, because you know what Gabe Davis saw? In that same amount of time, he saw seven touchdowns last year Woo! in his rookie Turned season, which is like not bad. So Gabe Davis, yes. Is he a bit streaky? Sure. Uh, could the catch rate be better? Yes. Yes, it could. I mean, 35 is 62. Like you're in the 50s there, but we've seen wide receivers go from the mid 50s into the mid 60s and low 70s before. I think even Devontae Adams, and I'm not saying Gabe Davis is Devontae Adams by any means, but like we've literally seen guys start from a lower catch rate early on. Jerry Judy, another example. Again, not saying Gabe Davis is Jerry Judy, but like these are guys where you can take a shot downfield with them. And as they get better, they get better at capitalizing on that shot downfield. I think Gabe Davis could be that guy. I think there is a real chance that they could have Gabe Davis line up on the outside with Stefan Diggs and then rotate a combination of Emmanuel Sanders and Cole Beasley in the slot. Sanders could switch with Gabe Davis a little or become a fourth wide receiver as well. Like Emmanuel Sanders can play the slot. He's incredibly versatile. I'm not necessarily that worried about him taking a ton of Gabe Davis's role. I'm a little concerned about Gabe Davis not having super great buzz so far in camp. And Emmanuel Sanders is getting great buzz in camp. So I do want to couch. I do want to give that warning as it were. Yes. I'm still in on the guy, but I've, I've are there be rough seas ahead as it were like, you Yarr. know, Yarr. Uh, but we did see some bright spots as well. We saw, you know, three for four 
with 79 yards and a touchdown, 16.9 PPR points. He has stretched from week 12 to week 14. We had 16.9, 15.8, and 10.9 points. And those weren't the only double-digit weeks he saw. He had 12.1 points in week three, 10.8 points in week five, 17 points in week nine, and 18.7 points in week 17. Like, you know, not the most consistent, but the consistency can come. The ability to do the most with those targets can come. And with no John Brown this year, I think Gabe Davis has a real chance, if he can take it, to cement himself as one of the two perimeter guys along with Stephon Diggs. And that would then leave Sanders fighting with Beasley, who has not endeared himself, I think, to his team, particularly over the offseason. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, there's definitely some other players on Buffalo that aren't getting vaccinated, including I think it's important to mention quarterback Josh Allen, I do not believe is vaccinated at this point and has had a mild anti-vax stance. Um, that all being said, he hasn't had quite the public opinion, as it were, yeah. on the sta- on the on the topic that Beasley had. So we haven't really talked about it, but I think it merits a mention. Um, but like, I, I think GM Brandon Bean's pissed. Oh, definitely. You know, and that's, I think and, Coach and, Sean McDermott isn't thrilled. And and that's a whole other rabbit hole that we could go down another time. And we time, don't need but, to. But the point is to say that the opportunity for Gabe Davis is there. This is a guy that flashed at times. You know, he's young. He's 22. There's no reason he can't pop off this year. So he's my guy from the AFC East, especially wide receiver 64 and ADP. Last year, he was wide receiver 60 in his rookie year when he was like the fourth wide receiver on the team. Yeah. And you know what's really fun about this whole thing? You know, kind of like wrapping it up because I, I promise this is an excellent transition. There's a fun game of musical chairs that we can play here because I brought up the name of Nelson Aguilar. He, you know, he signed with New England. You know, he's, you know, coming over from, you know, his old team that he was on last year. He finds himself in a new place. Gabriel Davis, you're talking about like, oh, well, whose role can he replace? John Brown. Well, guess where John Brown went? Las, Las Vegas, Vegas Raiders. In the AFC West to replace Nelson Aguilar in the Raiders offense. Boom, presumably. Oh, man, because that's the AFC West. It's the AFC West. It's the next division on the. You see what I did there? I do. And I love it. And I also want to mention John Brown could be available super cheap in your leagues, in your drafts. You will not get to rely on him all season. But if you can get him dirt cheap, he might win you a game. So, you know, he he could very much be a if he's healthy stardom guy. A la a Wolf Hill, uh, Will Fuller. Very true. You or never know. a la so, a John Brown of years past. Like we've course, seen it yes. before. Of course, hundred percent. But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's just let's take it into the AFC West, and we'll start with you this time. What is the biggest question mark on your brain? So the biggest question mark on my brain is who will be the RB two in Los Angeles? Because I think that could be a valuable role. Obviously, the Chargers, since we're talking about the AFC, and so. We know Eckler will be the lead. We don't have to argue about whether Eckler will be the lead. For sure. But who will be that RB2? Because even though Anthony Lynn is gone, I think in that Joe Lombardi offense, there is some value to that RB2. So in 2014, when Lombardi was the offensive coordinator, you had Joe Bell with a clear lead, 223 rushing attempts, which by the way, 
Austin Eckler's just not going to see that level of rushing work, no matter how bullish you are on him. Um, did you catch all of that? Because you froze again. Oh, no, we're good. Okay, I'm going to restart in now. So, Joeek Bell got 223 rushing attempts. And, you know, like, I don't think Austin Eckler's going to get that, you know, I just don't. I think even the most bullish people would say 223 rushing attempts for Austin Eckler. It's unlikely. I mean, he will make it up in target work, but that would be in a, that would be double like what he sees in a normal year, even when he was healthy. Um, but Reggie Bush, 76 rushing attempts, 56 targets. That's super valuable. That was the RB2 in that Lombardi offense. Even Theo Riddick, only 20 rushing attempts, but 50 targets. Like that was the RB3. That has value. You go into 2015, Amir Abdullah, 143 rushing attempts. All right, now we're talking more in Eckler's vein. Only 38 targets, which, you know, Eckler will see more than that. He might see the 99 targets that Theoretic saw that year. Um, but then like Joe Week Bell, 90 targets, uh, sorry, 90 rushing attempts and 27 targets. Like that is valuable. You know, it's RB3 potential. Um I think there is a lot of potential for an RB2 in this offense. We even, you know, and we've seen it with the personnel. I think some of that personnel will still be taken into account in how this offense is run. Like last year, we all saw Joshua Kelly become like the like waiver wire darling and then immediately oh, disappoint. God. Oh, which, oh, and this is the important this is the important part. Name. We've seen Joshua Kelly disappoint. We saw Kalen Balaj and Justin Jackson be like just fine. Balazs is no longer there. Justin Jackson's on the last year of his contract. They just drafted Larry Roundtree the third. Larry Roundtree the third is going at, I want to say, running back 102 in terms Oof. of PPR ADP. So you can get him for literally nothing. He could be the running back too in this offense. Now, right now, the camp buzz is not great. Um, Kelly and Roundtree both had a chance to take advantage of Jacks, Justin Jackson's absence from being on the reserve COVID-19 list. No, we don't have it confirmed, I believe, if Jackson had COVID-19, had any symptoms, a positive test, or had just been a close contact because only a day had gone by before Jackson returned. For sure, yes. So Kelly and Roundtree, it'll be interesting to see, but I would say that like, you know, Kelly didn't impress last year. Jackson, we kind of know what he is. Roundtree is someone where there's a higher range of outcomes. And again, you can get him for nothing. You don't even have to draft him. You can keep an eye on waivers and then make that waiver claim like in the lead up to week one or after week one because you just see the promising signs. So he's actually my potential under the radar guy for this division because again, RB 102, like, Come on. If you could get an RB3 with that sort of value, that'd be insane. Well, for sure. And it's definitely within the realm of possibility. And also, sorry for my extremely visceral reaction to the name of Joshua Kelly, but as you I remember... I think it was merited. It, it, I know you remember, but uh, for those of you listening, uh, when the lateral first launched, but a summer ago, my first really in-depth research piece... <laughs> was this whole thing building the case for Joshua Kelly to, like, be this, like, really effective 
flex for your fantasy teams and i was i was spot on for like two weeks and then oh gosh it all it came crashing down to earth oh i spent an ungodly amount of time hyping that man it's just, it still hurts it still hurts but hey I bring it up because it's important to to own your mistakes, own your losses, and it ties back to the beginning of the show. We're all going to be wrong. <laughs> We're all going to be wrong. It's still a little sore spot, but at least as far as the RB2 in Los Angeles goes, in my opinion, do they matter? Because I I know that Austin Eckler has always had a hard time. And to your point about, you know, he doesn't run the ball a whole bunch based off of, you know, his career totals to this point. But if you look back and we think about the context of those situations, a lot of it had to do with the fact that he was seeding that work to Melvin Gordon. And there was a role baked into the offense for Melvin Gordon to be that guy. And he was more of the pass catching compliment. But whenever, you know, we go back a couple of years ago when Austin Eckler ended up finishing RB four overall in 2019, because the, if we remember the Melvin Gordon contract holdout that it didn't end up finishing all that positively, I guess, for the Chargers. In a way, it depends on how you look at it. Melvin Gordon ended up moving on to the Denver Broncos. Austin Eckler carried the ball a lot. And even early on last year, before he ended up having that hamstring injury, he ran the ball a lot. And one of the other interesting things is that, you know, ever since, you know, oh my God, this dude, when he came back last season, if we were to... You know, from uh, week 12 through the end of the season, if we were to, you know, extrapolate his targets over the course of a 17-game schedule, yes, I know, this is a dangerous game to play, but just saying it for the sake of saying it, Eckler would have been on pace for 136 targets. Well, there's absolutely no way that could possibly happen, right? Well, you point out Joe Lombardi's time as the Detroit offensive coordinator, but that was a little bit ago, and his next stop in his coaching journey was with the New Orleans Saints under the tutelage of Sean Payton. So I am kind of anticipating a more Saints-style offense, and he's even been quoted as saying how excited he is to try and use him in the Alvin Kamara role and really try to make him the new Alvin Kamara, which, to be fair, kind of like I said before, he kind of already was in 2019-ish. Not so much in terms... Whatever. Not the point. There are very few running backs that we can even project to have close to like 100 targets in a passing game, but he did that in 2019, and he was well on pace to do that last year. Who's to say he can't do that again? I don't know. I kind of dig the vibe. I kind of dig the vibe. So before I briefly ask you about Austin Eckler, before we get into whatever I have to say about the thing, because I forgot what I put down in the show sheet and it's going to be frustrating. I'll have to click on it again. Where do you have Austin Eckler? And also, big fan of Larry Roundtree. I do support that call of yours because if it does end up being a guy that could, you know, split some time, a la the Latavius Murray or Mark Ingram or whatever that type of situation, he could score some touchdowns. But Either way, uh, where do you have Austin Eckler before I get into my mumbo-jumbo? I currently have him at RB10. I could potentially move him to RB9. I don't think I'd move him to RB8. There's just some guys ahead of him where I know that they will get a guaranteed workload that is better. Austin Eckler's workload comes with a bit of speculation. You could see 11 rushing attempts and like seven targets per game. But we haven't quite yet. Not over a full season. 
he's never actually been the starting running back over a full season. Now, granted, that was due to injury last year. And then I'm behind Melvin Gordon before that. But we still haven't seen it. Whereas like Christian McCaffrey, Dalvin Cook, Alvin Kamara, Saquon Barkley, Derrick Henry, Ezekiel Elliott, Aaron Jones. These are all guys where I've seen him do it before. And then Najee Harris. I just know that there's no one else in the game. So I've got Najee as my RB8. And then I've got Jonathan Taylor as my RB9. And Jonathan Taylor, I think, will ultimately have enough volume that I feel a bit better about him. But if come the heat of redraft season, I have Eckler as my RB9 and Taylor as my RB10, will it shock me? Maybe not. I could see moving Taylor as far down as my RB11, where I currently have Nick Chubb. Because Nick Chubb, uh, the biggest issue for me is the passing game. But like even then, last year, his points per game was insane. He was killing it down the stretch. Like he's really good. So you know, I I could see I could see Jonathan Taylor continuing to fall a little, especially with uh, some news that I think we're going to talk about maybe in part two. Wink, Ooh, wink, nod, nod. Um, but you know, Austin Eckler, I just like. For me to bet that much on a running back who isn't the most known for running the ball is a concern. Granted, is he like J.D. McKissick, where it's like all he did was get targets? No, no, he's better than that. But like everyone else I mentioned, like they're known for being able to run the ball and then they'll also get work in the passing game and have very little competition, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I just can't move him really ahead of RB9. Again, him and Taylor are the two that I'm like kind of neck and neck on i feel you and hey you heard the harms case you heard the mclateral case listeners you decide but regardless we both really like austin eckler and we both acknowledge there could be some potential there for that rb2 in that offense larry roundtree i'm with you on that and keeping it in the running back uh, realm actually yeah this one's pretty interesting because you know Melvin Gordon, we already talked about him a little bit. You know, he got sprinkled in there. He's on the Denver Broncos. My biggest question mark is what the Denver Broncos are going to do with the whole running back situation. When do we see a changing of the guard? Do we even see a changing of the guard? Because if we remember, the team traded up in the second round to pick Javante Williams out of North Carolina. This is something that we've We've speculated about in the past, in previous episodes, we've talked about how traditionally whenever there is an incumbent veteran on an expiring contract and a running back that is picked with hefty draft capital, that there's usually a changing of the guard by the middle of the season. But there is a little wrench thrown into this one, I think, because I, if I remember correctly, it was, uh, gosh, I completely apologize if I get this person's name wrong, but I want to say his name is Benjamin Albright. He is somebody that was at, he's a beat reporter. I can't remember what uh, news service he worked for, but he was mentioning the fact that uh, I saw it on like a fantasy footballers thing. Um, Melvin Gordon, allegedly based out of things that, you know, coming out of Denver camp, still very much the RB one there. And unlike situations in the past where, you know, because for example, something that we used as uh, you know, somewhat of a parallel Mark Ingram and J.K. Dobbins last year. It was just like, well, 
you know, part of what helped facilitate that change was the fact that, you know, Mark Ingram was not particularly effective and, you know, moving on to J.K. Dobbins was a lot easier to do. But despite, you know, weird efficiency things in terms of just purely running the ball, Melvin Gordon was still able to score touchdowns a lot last year and was efficient enough to the point where he's not as in danger as someone like a Mark Ingram was necessarily. So I don't know. I, how are we feeling about both of these running backs? When do we see the changing of the guard or rather, do we even see it at all? This is incredibly murky. I have my thoughts, but I'd rather hear yours first. Uh, so I think ultimately we do see the changing of the guard at some point in the season. Cause I have Javante Williams as my RB 26. I have Melvin Gordon as my RB 30. I think the change will happen as soon as the wheels fall off is the short answer. Like the second Javante starts looking like the better running back, whenever that happens, they're going to make him the RB one or at least the one a, like that's all there is to it. I think right now the short answer is Melvin Gordon, just the wheels haven't fallen off quite yet. So I don't really have a better answer for you than that. But like Melvin Gordon was like 12.7 points last year was nothing uh, points per game last year. Like it was nothing special. There's no reason Javante Williams can't be more electric than that. Yeah, 100 percent. And also I went ahead and looked it up. Yes, his name is Benjamin Albright. He is a Broncos insider for koa colorado okay i'd actually i'd seen the same report where it was like melvin gordon looks like the clear rb1 in camp right now and that's great that's fine i don't expect that to be what we're saying come week 17 no and i definitely agree with you and i'm also just so relieved that i didn't mess up that person's name hooray but yeah you know i mean it's important to pose the question the way that i did because you know intrigue always fun but then uh yeah, you know, it's just the the changing of the guard. You know, this is something we talked about. I kind of expect it the same way. I have Javante Williams as my RB24, and I have Melvin Gordon as my RB32. It's just, I mean, despite the fact that Melvin Gordon was not that bad last year, it wasn't always pretty. And you don't trade up to get a running back and then decide not to use them, right? You know, so I guess the question really is, if we're going to just boil down to it, I don't have the schedule in front of me. That's not something that's at my disposal. But if we were to look at the schedule and just, like, say, like, okay, there could be, you know, some matchups with some, you know, tough defenses and blah, blah, blah. If we're just going to try and approximate where we could possibly see, okay, we're sick of Melvin Gordon sucking. Let's hand it over to the kid. Where would we? I mean, he could have a that? he could have a brutal run against the Browns and Washington back to back, October twenty first and October thirty first. So okay. Then you get the Cowboys is... the following week, November seventh. You get the Eagles the week after that, November fourteenth. You know, a little easier. And I think that's important to highlight because. You know, those dates definitely do coincide with, you know. It's about the middle of the season. (laughs) There you go, folks. That's that's pretty good. That's that's definitely pretty good. Um, Yeah. So that's our take on the Broncos backfield. You already got, uh, you know, you already got Malcolm's breakout under the radar guy in Larry Roundtree. 
my guy, uh, I'm taking the bait. <laughs> I'm doing it one more time, but I'm only doing it one more time. Miko Hardman. It only recently occurred to me, and like I don't know how I went as long as I did without learning this information. I I found out maybe like three weeks ago. He originally played cornerback in college. He had only recently converted to playing wide receiver like shortly before he got drafted in the NFL. If I had known <laughs> that he was still very new to the position the entire time, I would have been far more patient personally. And also one of the things that's, you know, we've seen young wide receivers come into the league and make immediate impacts, but it used to be one of those, like the year three breakout, you know, you always got his you know, first couple of years. It may be rough, but year three things, you know, come around. And there was a lot of data that supported that for a long time. I'm doing it. <laughs> I am taking that bait one more time. And if I'm burned, it's okay. I accept it. And it is what it is, but you know, Sammy Watkins is no longer there in Kansas city. I understand that there's still Tarby Kill and Travis Kelsey and Clyde Edwards-Elaire will also be involved in the passing game. So it's not like he's going to be super high in the pecking order, but I'll take that chance. I will take that chance on Mecole Hardman. It's like, what, like my wide receiver five or something? <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. If it doesn't happen this year, I completely give up. <laughs> but that's that's my guy for this. Um, and that's also the first half of this two-part podcast yep please please note that the preceding viewpoint on Nicole hardman is only the viewpoint of herms at herms nfl and not the view of the lateral as a whole please direct any hate towards him because i am not buying into the Nicole hardman bait <laughs> i haven't really in the past i did his rookie year that was it and like i'm, I'm good I don't think that that value, I don't think that the wide receiver two position in Kansas city is all that valuable. And that's kind of what it comes down to. I feel you. There's yeah. definitely a lot of things that would have to change or go significantly right in terms of big play stuff. But at any it, rate, it, if it would, want... it would be like one thing if this was a guy, like we're taking the bait on like Jalen Darden, who people loved and like Chris Godwin oh. hadn't been re-signed and Antonio Brown went somewhere else in free agency. And like, he could be ascending into that wide receiver two role on a high powered offense that usually has a fantasy viable wide receiver two. Then it's like, yeah, I'm game. You know, even like a Terrace Marshall, like wide receiver three from the Panthers last year. Pretty good. Like I, I could buy into it. It's just like, I don't think the wide receiver two position at Kansas city is necessarily all that valuable and it could change, but maybe it changes because it isn't me. Cole Hardman. Oh, maybe it oh. changes because it's Cornell Powell. Oh, you know? oh. there's maybe you never know, you never know. You but never I do know. know that it is in fact the end of part one of our AFC preview. That it is direct hate for the Miko Hardman shit at Herms NFL direct support for starting that, <laughs> starting that charge at McLateral FF and follow the lateral on Twitter at the lateral FF. We'll see you in part two. Yep. It, if you're, if you're wondering how long you're going to wait to hear us, uh, I got good news for you. It's, it's not going to be that long. Very soon. Boom. Boom. Follow The Lateral at The Lateral FF on Twitter and check out the website www.thelateralff.com. Beep boop.